Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Tom Ward. I'm the high school pastor here. I had the chance to, to come and join you guys for worship sometime in the, I think January or so, three or four months ago. I was joking with Eric. Uh, it was about 80 degrees in the room that day. Anybody remember that? Uh, so I'm really glad it's 80 degrees out there and like a cool 68 in here right now. So, uh, but again, just so excited to, to be with you and to worship together and to dive into God's word. And so as we do so, uh, let's, let's take a moment to, to pray. Father God, we just come before you, uh, just acknowledging what we just sang, that, that we need you. We're all entering into this space today, just carrying on to different things, holding on to different burdens and joys and struggles and that we acknowledge that you know us and, and who we are and where we're at and that we just confess to you that, that you are what we need. And so as we dive into your word this morning, Lord, would you just give us what we need, more of you, more of your wisdom. God, give us ears to hear what it is that you have to say to us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, some of you uh, may know this, maybe some of you don't, but uh, I actually grew up in this area. I grew up in Geneva when I was a kid, uh, and my family started attending Chapel Street when I was in seventh grade. Quick fun fact, Pastor Bruce was also my middle school pastor for a short season, uh, although I wasn't super involved in church. I wasn't honestly very interested when I was in middle school, and really it wasn't until I was a junior in high school and I went on a mission trip to Ecuador that was really kind of the turning moment in my life and in my faith, just being in the mountains, just partnering with that ministry, just incredible uh, God really did incredible things in my life. I came in as a kid with a lot of questions and uncertainty. Uh, and on that trip was really the moment where I first understood the love of God and, and surrendered my life to following Jesus. And I could tell story after story about the experience on that trip. But it was really kind of the radical like faith life transformation uh, for me. And, and so then I remember coming back from Ecuador I was entering my junior year of high school and I had just had this awesome experience with Jesus and it changed my life. And I kind of had anticipated that life was just going to kind of be all good now, right? It was going to be easy and perfect. I'd never have any kind of struggles or hardships. Uh, and that really wasn't the case, as I'm sure you're expecting. My junior year was actually a really hard year where I struggled with a lot of things. And, and there was just, it felt like hard thing after hard thing continued to pile up in my life. And I was so confused and, and hurt and just unsure of what to do. And I didn't know what to do. And so my response was to go back to Ecuador. So my, entering my senior year, I went on the trip again, great group of friends, similar experience. I'd anticipated that maybe I just needed like one more big spiritual moment and then I'd be good. And so I went back on that trip and it was awesome, uh, but it, it didn't do quite what I hoped it would, right? I still, it didn't, it wasn't quite the same experience and I still experienced just hardships and struggles in my life. And, and as I've been processing that, especially in light of what we're gonna talk about this morning, I think looking back at that time in my life, I was really just trying to live out my faith all on my own, just completely out of my own strength and my own ability. And, and when that didn't work, right, when that wasn't enough, what I did was look to just have another big spiritual moment, another you know, spiritual high, as you might call it, on, on a mission trip. I looked to that kind of big moment instead of looking to what God had already given me, which is his spirit. And to this morning, as, as we continue on this uh, study that we're in, in Romans chapter 8, that's really what we're going to see Paul talking about. He's going to be talking about what it looks like to access the Holy Spirit and to really walk in his truth. 
Last weekend, uh, I know Pastor Brian was here and he preached on what we titled Life in the Spirit Part 1. And he looked at Romans 8 verses 5 through 11, unpacking the way of the flesh, the way of the Spirit, and ultimately what it looks like to live a life empowered by the Holy Spirit. And as we continue on in our series titled The Greatest Chapter, we're going to see Paul is expounding on these thoughts as he continues in his letter. And so today we're going to take a look at what we're calling part two, Life in the Spirit, part two. And we'll pick things back up in verse 12. It'll be up here on the screens. If you have your Bibles, you can read along with me. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. Here's what Paul writes. He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I think it's probably pretty evident to us that there's really a lot happening in that passage. It's been the case every week as we've been diving in to Romans chapter 8. And I think, honestly, we probably only have time to kind of scratch the surface of all that Paul has jam-packed into these six verses. But I want to dive right in here with you this morning. And the first thing I think we see in this passage is what I'm calling a new obligation. A new obligation. I don't know about you, uh, but I'm, I'm somewhat like of a creature of habit. And I see this played out in a lot of times in my life. But something I thought of this week was probably four or five years ago, uh, my wife, Ashlyn, who's over here, we had just moved in to a condo that we, we were renting. We had some friends that helped us get everything over there and help us unpack. I remember one of the first things we did was unpack the kitchen. We put everything away in all the cabinets. And I specifically remember we put the cups in a cabinet that was just to the right of the sink, which was perfect because you could, it was near the fridge too. So you could grab a cup, fill it with ice, fill it with water. You didn't have to move your feet even. It was awesome. Perfectly placed. And then like three weeks went by and I went to go grab a cup from the perfectly placed cabinet and I opened it and there was plates in there. No cups to be found. I was kind of frantic. I didn't know what to do. I started opening cabinets all around the kitchen. I ended up doing a full circle until I got to the left side of the sink. And there is where I found the cups. And I don't know why, I know who moved them, but I don't know why. I don't know why they were moved. It was a perfect plan. Uh, And being the creature of habit that I am, for like the next two years that we lived there, almost every single time I went to go get a cup, I went to the wrong cabinet and saw plates in there and was frustrated and had to come back over. It's not really a perfect analogy, but you see something, something had changed, right? Something had been altered, and I continued to go back to what was familiar, what I was used to, what was comfortable. And again, it's not perfect, but it's sort of what Paul is talking about when he talks about our obligation to the flesh, not to the flesh, but to the spirit. Let's look back at what he says in verses 12 and 13. He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. 
If you've been tracking with us these first uh, two or three weeks of this series, you know that Paul has already spent a ton of time talking about the differences between being in the flesh and being in the spirit. But then here in verse 12, it, it seems like he's just kind of, con- when I first read it, it felt like he was kind of repeating himself from what we talked about last week. He's still continuing to circle around this idea of being in the flesh. And at first I was kind of confused, but the more I studied it, the more I realized, I think he's doing that for a really good reason. Because even though he's already told us that if we are in Christ, that we have a new operating system that we've talked about, the, the spirit, even though that's true of us, we still often have a tendency to kind of go back to what's familiar, what's comfortable, the flesh. Positionally, being in the spirit means you don't have obligation to the flesh any longer, but practically, we know that we aren't removed from the sin and temptation that swirls around the world around us and that continues to try to draw us in and grab a hold of us. Ray Ortland, in his book on Romans 8, puts it like this. It'll be on the screen. He says, The flesh, with its expectations and requirements, demands our cooperation and threatens us with misery if we do not comply. So I think in some ways one of the biggest challenges to Christian living is is when we accept Jesus and receive the Holy Spirit and are trying to walk by faith, but yet we struggle. And we keep looking back for that big, great spiritual moment, that spiritual high, but life continues to be hard, right? It's not easy and we struggle and we can feel that this, our sin nature is continually trying to draw us back. I think with that comes, comes all kinds of questions. For me, sometimes is, is, was that experience actually real? Did that really happen? And if so, like, what do I do with a life that's hard sometimes? What do I do with this struggle that I face? How do I deal with that? And this is really what Paul addresses as we move to verse 13. Let's look at what he writes again. He says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Put to death the misdeeds of the body. The King James Version uh, actually puts it like this. It says to mortify the deeds of the body. This is what theologians typically call mortification, kind of a big theological word. But simply put, it just means that as those who are in Christ, we are called to be led by the Spirit in order to put sin to death. We see Paul talk about this in a few different places in the New Testament. One uh, specific one is in Colossians chapter 3. He says, since then you've been raised with Christ, Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And jumping down to verse 5, he says, Put to death, therefore, what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. If you keep reading in that passage, you'll see that Paul continues that similar thought similar kind of train of thought for the next few verses. But I think already his point is really pretty clear, isn't it? He's saying that sin needs to be put to death. I think the reality is that even though we sometimes experience this this challenge I've been talking about of of trying to to walk with Jesus, but still experiencing struggles, I, I think at least for me sometimes the response that I need to kill my sin seems kind of intense, doesn't it? Like maybe you're like me and you might think like, yeah, I know I'm not perfect, but that seems at least a little bit dramatic. And I think that's exactly why Paul is, is putting it so bluntly. I think that's why Paul is saying that sin needs to be put to death. 
because sin is really good at lingering, right? It's really good at kind of just operating in the background of our lives, trying to convince us, just even ever so subtly, that it's not really that big of a deal and that we can get rid of it when we want to. It'll be easy. We can live with it as is and I'll be fine. But Paul tells us just a couple chapters before in Romans 6 that the wages of sin is death. See, sin's goal is destruction. Its goal is to destroy. It's not just this thing that we can allow to to linger in the background of our lives, even though that feels easier or safer or, or less risky at times. That's why John Owen in his book, The Mortification of Sin, famously once said that as a Christian, you should be killing sin or it will be killing you. Here's what Paul's trying to tell us. He's saying, if you've been given access to the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, which we just talked about last week in verse 11, the verse before we dove into today, if that's true of you, then as brothers and sisters, you have an obligation to live according to the Spirit. Now, I think we hear that word obligation and we just kind of immediately think about, think about the things that we have to do that we don't really want to do, right? Like that homework assignment that's due tomorrow, the task, it's your job that you've kind of been putting off for weeks or months, folding laundry, which is definitely true for me. That's not what Paul's talking about here though. What he's saying is something totally different. He's saying that if the Holy Spirit is dwelling in your life, then you should tap into that power, right? You should walk according to it. You should live in line with it. You should look to him and trust in him, believe that he has great things planned for your life. But yet I think many of us, if we're, if we're really honest, even though we might think that or we might understand that and believe that, if we think about the way in which we live, we much more often live with this mindset of, of I have to do more and I have to try harder, right? We feel like there's so much pressure on me to do my part, to fix this issue, to, to manage this struggle, to earn my approval. Paul's saying no, no, you're no longer obligated to the flesh. You don't have to live like that anymore. You can live according to the power of the Holy Spirit who is living inside of you. And that's the only way that you'll experience true joy, true satisfaction, and an abundant life, life to the full. So much more we could get into even in these first couple of verses. But for the sake of time, what we see is Paul really uses these first two verses to kind of turn a bit of a corner to teach us about another important truth that's true of us if we've received the Spirit. And that is that we've been given a new identity. It's the second thing we see in this text, a new identity. This picture uh, that's coming up here is a picture of the Van Rossum family. I'm sure some of you may know them. They've been chapel streeters for, I don't even know, for a long time, uh, for at least over 10 years. Uh, Carrie on the left is uh, actually on staff with Chapel Street in the connections. So you should really fill out that QR code that Bruce talked about. She'd be happy. Uh, and then Todd on the right is a great dude. He's been a volunteer leader in high school ministry for a little while. Their kids, the youngest one on the bottom is Brady. He's a seventh grader. Jacob is a sophomore. And Rachel on the right is the oldest and she's a junior. And, and this is a family I've known. I've been on staff for almost eight years. I've known them the whole time. Love 
love this family. They're so, they're so great, such a great part of our church. Uh, but just really a few months ago, uh, I learned something about them that I didn't know before, that I probably should have. But uh, in a conversation with Carrie, it came up that Rachel, the oldest, was actually adopted. I didn't know that. But apparently back then, Carrie and Todd had struggled with infertility for quite a while and they went through the adoption process and they received Rachel right after she was born from her birth mother, which is an incredible display of, of selflessness and love. Um, and then just actually shortly after that, they found out that, that Carrie was pregnant with Jacob. So they're actually about seven or eight months apart, those two. Uh, it's just incredible uh, if you ever have the chance to, to hear them share their story about God's provision in their life and in, specifically in that season. Just an incredible story. Uh, and I talked with Carrie earlier this week and, and asked permission if I could show this picture and, and talk a little bit about their story because I think it's such, a, it's a, such a powerful story. But it's also such a great testament to the love that God has for us as his adopted children. And Carrie said something specific that stood out to me I wanted to share with you. This is what she said. She said, we never even think of Rachel as adopted into our family. She is our daughter, truly loved. I think that's so evident in the way that that they live and operate as a family. And they're such a good example to me about the love that God has for us as his children and the new identity that he gives us through what Paul refers to as the spirit of adoption that we see in verses 14 through 16. Let's look again at what Paul writes He says, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Paul's telling us that in Christ and through the Spirit, we have been adopted as children of God. And we're given a new identity. But before we talk about this new identity, though, I think it's important to talk about somewhat of a, of a common barrier, I think, to understanding our true identity. So if you were to ask me how I describe myself, ask me that question, a lot of things would pop into my mind, right? I'm a husband, I'm a son, a brother, a homeowner, which I've learned means you call the plumber a lot, which is not very fun. I love raspberries. Uh, I'm somebody that gets very confused every time that Andrew talks about the Marvel Universe or Star Wars. It's just like, what are you talking about? Uh, and just over a year and a half ago, something new was added to the list. I'm a father. Here's a picture. I showed a picture last time I was here, but here's a more recent picture of our daughter, Raylan. She's crying in the nursery right now, probably. Uh, she's, I had to do the math last night. Somebody asked me, she's, she's about 19 and a half months, which I, I'm glad to be done counting uh, how many months. But she's the coolest and it's such a privilege to be your dad. But uh, one of the things that describes me now, and of course, if, if, if I had more time, I, would, I, could, I could list all kinds of things that come to mind that describe me. You kind of get the idea. So let me kind of put it back on you. What would you say are some of the things that describe you? What describes you in, in your life and your situation? My guess is a lot of things are coming to mind right now. You could probably shout them out because that's what we do here at North Aurora, which is awesome. But maybe you're thinking, hey, I'm a student or a grandparent. I'm a stay-at-home mom. Maybe you're funny. That's something that describes you. Maybe you're not. Maybe that's something that describes you. Maybe you're smart or kind or musical and play the violin like all these guys back here. Maybe there's some things that pop into your mind that are a bit more difficult. Depressed, anxious, hurting, when I was a kid, I, I played quarterback on the football team. 
from really from fifth grade through high school, that was really the thing that I, that I thought about the most, what I talked about the most, what I cared about, what I dreamed about. Like, it was really easy for me. Football, playing quarterback, eventually in my mind, it kind of became a thing more than just something that I did, came more than just something that described me, it really became who I thought I was. I think for, for all of us, whether we realize it or not, that sometimes that can kind of happen. Where our identity gets kind of mixed up when we take things that simply describe us, even good things. When we take things that describe us and we allow them to become things that we think define us. But you're not defined by life circumstances, right? Because those things change. They, they ebb and flow and they're not always the same. And I think that's exactly why Paul tells us in, here in Romans 8 that we are truly defined by who the Spirit says we are. So your identity is based on the fact that as Paul just said in verse 15, that the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. I think Paul here is is really trying to draw a, a clear line for us by using some of this adoption language. What he's saying is that no one is born into a true relationship with God. Actually, the fact that we can receive sonship proves that there was a time where we were lost. Right, a time in which we were separated from God. And I think that's why the image of adoption is so powerful. Because it shows that our relationship with God is completely based on the act of the Father. Right? Rachel didn't choose her way or will her way to be adopted to become a daughter of Todd and Carrie. It was a gift that she simply received. And that same thing is true of us as children of God. We simply just receive this incredible gift, this incredible display of love. Put John 1.12 puts it like this. It says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so what, what defines you? Who does the Spirit say that you truly are is an adopted child of God. Well, Paul tells us that if you, by faith, belong to Christ, are a son of God and have his spirit, then you're identified by these four things. First, your new identity is that you have security. Paul says in verse 15 that you are no longer slaves to fear, meaning that your relationship with God is not like the relationship that people in this culture would have understood he's talking about between a servant and a master, where you'd really need to carefully watch your step out of fear that you're going to be punished or, or removed. No, Paul's saying your relationship with God operates out of security, knowing that you are loved and cherished. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ that God is for you and with you and there's nothing that can ever separate you from his love. This means that you don't have to worry about your status. You don't have to worry about, about your position or, or whether or not you measure up in God's eyes. Like Carrie said, you aren't just adopted into God's family. You are a true son or daughter of God. In Christ, you're secure. Second, you have authority. In the ancient world, this culture in which Paul is writing this letter, slaves would have had no authority at all. They were either given the choice to do what they were told or they'd have to kind of suffer the consequences. But as a child of God, we're told that you're given authority through the Holy Spirit because the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in you. 
So you can live your life knowing that you belong to Jesus, knowing that you've been given authority over sin and death through the power of the Holy Spirit. Third, Paul says you have intimacy, intimacy with God. Let's look back at what he writes in verse 15. He says, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. The word Abba, Bruce referenced it earlier in his prayer. It's an Aramaic word that's often translated as daddy. For a child in that culture, really that term would have been really like the greatest term of, of closeness and intimacy with your father. Like, how many of us might call our fathers dad or pops, maybe daddy. I actually know a guy uh, who uh, calls his dad chief, which is kind of cool. Maybe not really part of the sermon, but, uh, but, but here's, here's why this is important. He's saying, Paul's saying, if you belong to Christ, if you're a son of God, if you have his spirit, then you're able to approach the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-sustaining God in the, of the universe in the same way that a child can approach their father. This has always stood out to me, but obviously it carries with it a whole different weight now that I'm a dad. If you're a parent, I'm sure you kind of know what I'm talking about. There's just something indescribable about the way that you love your child, the way that you feel when they cry out to you and, and call out to you. And it's in that same intimate way that Paul is saying that, that we have access to God, that we can talk to God because God's close to us. He's not just this big, powerful being off in the clouds that kind of set up the whole world and is just standing at a distance, kind of hoping for the best and and watching to see how things play out. No, he's present with us. He desires for us to cry out to him, to be in relationship with him. So as a child of God, you have security, authority, intimacy, and fourth, you have assurance. Verse 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. I think in life and in faith, we all have questions, right? We all have have doubts and, and fears and concerns. But Paul here is telling us that the Spirit of God himself, did you catch that? The Spirit of God himself comes alongside of us and is the one giving us the true assurance of who we are. That if you are in Christ, the Spirit is actively assuring you and reassuring you of your true identity. That you're loved, chosen, accepted, forgiven, adopted. God is communicating from His Spirit to our Spirit who we are. The Spirit who dwells in you is continually reminding you of what's true at the deepest level. So you don't have to question if you really belong. You don't have to question if that experience was was real or not. You don't have to doubt whether or not you're, you're valuable or cherished or loved. God's telling us that through his spirit, you're given the assurance that you are a child of God. This is your identity. This is what defines you. And that leads us to our final point this morning. Life of the spirit means we have a new obligation, a new identity. And third, it means that we have a new inheritance. Here's how Paul wraps up this passage, verse 17. He says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we also may share in his glory. What does it mean to be an heir of God? 
Well, in the ancient culture, only the, only the oldest son would be the one who would receive the, the largest share of the wealth. And if there wasn't an oldest son or if there wasn't a child, uh, what they would do is they would adopt somebody, a move that would completely change the trajectory of that person's life. Sometimes even they would adopt adults, which is kind of different than our culture. Uh, but they would make that person the heir if they didn't have a child. But we see here in verse 17 is Paul saying that all who are in Christ are heirs. Not just the oldest son, not just an adopted heir. I think what this means is that all of us, all who are in Christ, receive what will feel to us like the majority share. That if Jesus is the heir of the whole universe and we're co-heirs with Christ, as Paul just says, that means that what belongs to Jesus also belongs to us. Which is kind of crazy to think about. That we stand to inherit everything. Probably most importantly, we stand to inherit God himself for all of eternity. But you may have noticed something else in verse 17. Paul says that that is true, that we are heirs with God and co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings. I think that word if can kind of trip us up sometimes. Really, most scholars would better translate that word as since. It's not really intended to be an if-then statement as much as it's intended to be a word that kind of connects two related thoughts. So here's what Paul's saying. He's saying that if you're a Christ follower, if you've accepted Jesus and have received the Holy Spirit, there's a reality that you will experience some level of suffering as you go throughout life in this world. doesn't mean that every Christ follower is going to be persecuted or that you need to, to, to be a martyr for your faith, but there's a reality that there's some degree of suffering in the life of a believer that should be expected. Jesus said as much, right? He said, in the same way they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. We're going to talk about this in a lot more depth next week as Paul kind of transitions and and talks about the suffering that we see and the suffering that we experience in the world around us. But I think there's one more important thing to to note real quick in verse 17. Paul says that we're heirs, that we receive this new inheritance if we share in his sufferings in order that we also may share in his glory. Again, we'll dive into this in more depth next week, but Paul's saying here that his sons and daughters— that we receive an inheritance that leads to glory. That there's a day coming when all of God's glory will be revealed to us. Because of that, we can rejoice in our suffering when we recognize the significance behind why we suffer. So that Christ may be glorified and that we may be glorified with him. So as we wrap up here this morning, I just want you to to take a moment to to think about some of the ground that Paul covered. We just talked about six verses this morning, but think about some of the ground that he covers. He says that if you're in Christ and have received the Spirit, that you have a new obligation to the Spirit, not to the flesh. You have a new identity adopted as God's child. That you're positioned to inherit all that God has for you and to be glorified with Christ. If you just stop and think about that, it's it's overwhelming. It's incredible. And as I've been reflecting on this passage this week, in some ways it, it struck me kind of all over again that all of that is true because of what God has done for me. Not because of what I have done or not because of what I can do for God. Rather, in the same way that, that, in, that in a moment, Rachel was adopted into the, into the Van Rossum family as their daughter. Each one of us who have surrendered our lives to Jesus have been adopted as God's children. 
For me, that happened as a 16-year-old kid in the mountains of Ecuador. For you, maybe it, it was in, in a single moment, kind of like that. Or maybe if you think about your, your life and your faith trajectory, it was a series of gradual moments. I think whatever the case, when, when the Spirit entered your life, this is what happened. You received a new identity and a new inheritance. And if that hasn't happened for you, the truth is that the God of the universe, the one who sent his son to die for you and promises to send his spirit to guide you, he longs to be in relationship with you. He's inviting you, maybe even right now, he's inviting you to surrender your life, to surrender your will, to follow him. So as we wrap up, there's, there's three questions that I want you, that I've been kind of wrestling with and, and thinking about the last couple of days that I want to encourage you to, to process and, and think through uh, today and into this week. I don't have a slide for these, so you can follow along. Three questions. First, is there any sin that I need to put to death through the power of the Spirit? Any sin I need to put to death? Is there something that maybe even this morning the, the Holy Spirit's kind of been pointing out to you, something you've allowed to linger and kind of you know, stay in the background of your life. Two, is there anything that describes me that I've allowed to define me? Is there some kind of false identity that you found yourself kind of drifting toward and, and holding on to? And three, Is there any area of my life where I've been trying to do the work of the Spirit myself? Any area of my life I've been trying to do the work of the Spirit myself? It's probably evident that all of these questions have have resonated with me in the last couple of days. I think this one probably the most. I've been really asking the question of, have I really let him in? Or, Or do I just kind of keep him at a distance? Do I really trust the power of the Spirit in my life or... Or do I really trust my own power? And have I just been trying to do it on my own? I think Paul's encouragement to us is, is really clear here in Romans 8. And it's the encouragement that I, that I hope you leave with as, as the worship team comes and, and leads us. That we can rest and walk in the truth that the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is alive in you. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you, God, just overwhelmed and and grateful for the love that you have for us. God, we don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. But yet, you sent your son to to die for us on our behalf so that we could be reconciled with you and adopted as your children. And God, I just pray for for each one of us here in this room this morning that as we continue to, to... just try to walk by faith and, and live in line with your spirit, God, that you would give us the courage to, um, to realize and, and, and deal with maybe the sin that's lingering in our lives. God, that you would give us the confidence to, that we are defined by who you say we are, not by what the world is trying to convince us of. God, would you give us the, the clarity to, to follow you? God, as your spirit nudges and prompts us, God, would we would we follow you? God, would we trust you? Would we surrender everything we, ha- we are and everything we have to you and to your will? Jesus, we love you and we pray all these things in your name. Amen.